This morning we return to the word of the Lord, to Hebrews chapter 3. If you would turn there in your Bibles, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, that's on page 1197. Just uh, delighted to know of the Lord's work as we consider his word. And, and, and this is one of those texts that just, you know, the Lord always orchestrates things in our lives that we just could never expect. Even in uh, Glenn's Sunday school class this morning, the parallels with our text, stunning to consider. And, uh, and in my life, in fact, this text so perfectly paralleling my previous uh, uh, occupation as an engineer with that of a pastor. We're going to see much as those two come together in building. So uh, we'll look at that. It's, it's my delight to see these two worlds come together today. We talk a little bit about building houses. And I have built every kind of house from a, a 200 square foot addition on someone's home so that they might have uh, an extra bathroom and bedroom to a 35,000 square foot home and, and all things in between. And uh, my goal was always the same in those projects, to get people to love their home, to provide them as an engineer a place that was safe and that I could deliver a plan to the builder that he would construct that the people would be in love with their home. And, and there's nothing really better. We are so in love with being here with y'all and in our home and trust the same as in your lives. And it's what we see in our scripture this morning. And that's why I've titled our message for this morning, How Much Do You Love Your Home? How Much Do You Love Your Home? Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verses 1 to 6 and understand how the Lord would reveal that title in our text. Hebrews 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. For he had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confession and the hope or the boast of our hope firm until the end. How much do you love your home? Our text has two components in it this morning that reveal to us this theme of house building. Two components that address faithfulness as we come in parallel with this idea of homes. Two components of faithfulness really that dictate the depth of our love. Two components that dictate the depth of our love. Now we've just concluded in our first two chapters our first major proof of Jesus' superiority. That as his superiority over the angels. We've noted that there are eight different proofs in the book of Hebrews that show Jesus' superiority over all things. The first was over angels and it is the second longest in the book of Hebrews. We saw him in chapter 1 as his superiority as the messenger. And in chapter 2, Jesus' superiority as the message. And we spoke last week about the brilliance of the literature. How there is this connectivity and flow that is so unique in all of the scripture. How if we looked back at, at verse 1 and verse 14, rather, of chapter 1, there in 1.14, we see the conclusion of the first chapter, and then there is this parenthesis, this warning. And then in verse 5 of chapter 2, it picks right up, and so there's a little leapfrog over this beautifully intertwined parenthesis. So also when we got to the end of chapter 2, there was this beautiful foretelling, this foreshadowing about Jesus who is our great high priest. 
That is going to be the next most major topic in the book of Hebrews. It will consume the biggest portion of the text. We'll enter it in chapter 5 and it'll go all the way to chapter 10 in varying components. Jesus is our great high priest. And yet part of that now is intertwined for us in Jesus' superiority as it comes to consider Moses. Wonderful for us to recognize how important it was to show that over the angels because as we discussed, the Jewish believers to whom the author wrote believed that the angels were really the main thing. They believed that the angels were the highest level of greatness in some cases and in some sects of Judaism even more important than Messiah. The one who, those whom God would go to as counselors. So the author says, no, 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 no. You must understand that Jesus is far superior as Messiah to the angels. And now we're going to come and consider Jesus' superiority to Moses. Our text today has a new unit and the beauty of that writing continues as the first part of this section of scripture serves as its own introduction. So beautiful to look at. Let's go and look at that introduction as we consider these first verses. Our introduction begins by connecting the former things. That word therefore, we understand that when we see it we need to under look at what it is there for. But it is really more than that. If you were here last week, you remember we talked about the first word in verse 17 of chapter 2. It looks like the same, therefore. It's actually a much more emphatic form, the word wherefore. And it it summarizes all that's gone before. All of Jesus' superiority over the angels came down to verse 17 of chapter 2. His high priestly order. And now even that is summarized in the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 3. This whole emphatic nature of this conjunction. Because of all of that happened, he was superior to the angels. And now because of all of that, or even more than all of that, we're now going to see a more stunning parallel. Now after this connection with the previous section, he addresses the audience. He calls them holy brethren. Specifically, these are the believers, those who have been called by the Lord. As we know, these are the the Jewish believers, the brothers and sisters there that are being written to. Brethren or brothers indicates part of a family. Well, such we are as well. We are brothers and sisters. We rightly call one another brother or sister. Because so we are, and so God has orchestrated. We are not here by accident. God has put us together in this body so that we would do His work. He has specifically gifted each and every one of us so that we would work together intricately to carry forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. Such a beautiful consideration for us to recognize. And he calls them holy, separated, set apart, not a part of this world, not a part of this present world system, of the evil that surrounds us. We are to be other than that, just as God and Christ are other than this world, being perfectly holy. So we too also, as First Peter tells us, are to be holy as he is holy. Holy brethren. And by application, beloved, this immediately applies to us because you too, if you are here and you know Christ as Savior, you are the holy brethren. He also calls them partakers. This is a particularly important word in our context because we've just seen it back in verse 14 of chapter 2. I want to draw your attention back to verse 14 of chapter 2. Remember what we spoke of here in chapter 2 and verse 14 where it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. When we discussed that text, we were reminded that, cha- that verse 14 was telling us that we are all of one nature. We are all of one flesh and blood. That that text destroys any notion of racism. 
and carries us back to the biblical foundation that we are all one in Christ. Although racism exists in our world, it is an offense and an abomination against God. For we are one nature coming from one family. But Christ had to partake of that. He was not of our nature. God sent him down so that he could put on flesh and blood, so that he could understand all of our trials, all of our weaknesses. And so now also, in that same fashion, we see this same verb, partake, coming forward. Now to the holy brethren. And notice what they are partakers of. They are partakers of a heavenly calling. Just as Jesus had to partake of flesh and blood because it was not his nature, we too have to be partakers of a heavenly calling for it is not our nature. We are not those who are inherently of the heavenly divine abode. We are of this earth. We are flesh and blood. We are but dust. But we are those who have been called to be partakers of a heavenly calling. That word calling is a word that when used in the scripture is used almost in a universally spiritual and religious sense. It's not just calling to dinner. It used to be one of my favorite lines. You know, you can call me whatever you want, just don't call me late for dinner. It's not that kind of calling. This is a divine invitation. This is a calling by God to you and to me that we would come and partake of that heavenly abode. John 10 and verse 2 speaks about that. Listen as I read John 10 and verse 2 and a few afterwards. Jesus said, But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own. He has called us to himself. We are Christ because he has called. He has opened our eyes. He has placed upon us a desire to know him, to move away from this world, to recognize the sin that is in our lives, and to say, no, I do not want that. I want to live in such a way that Christ would be honored and glorified. This is the heavenly calling. One from heaven, literally one from God himself. God before time, before all recorded time, before anything existed of this planet, God knew you. Is that not stunning? That he, he has understood us from all time. And, and, and although that in and of itself is miraculous to recognize who we are. Because in knowing us, he knew all about us. He knew the darkness in our heart. He knew the sickness in our mind. He knew the horror of our flesh. And he called us. And he loved us. Partakers of a heavenly calling. In Romans 4 and verse 16, it says, as Paul wrote to the Romans there in verse 16 in chapter 4, he writes, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. All whom God has called, all of those of Jewish background, all of those of Gentile background, that is us. He has called us together in one body to be those who are his according to grace by faith. Let me tell you something else about this calling, beloved. It is irrevocable. I will never forget the time I listened to Dr. MacArthur, one of the first messages after I'd started seminary. And he stood and he made the most amazing profession. And I pray I'll never forget it. He goes, you know, my salvation is not mine. It's all of God's. And I'm so glad because if I could lose it, I would. 
as surely as I lose my keys and my wallet, and poor Miss Diane, I'm walking out of the office half the time, and she's going, do you have your coffee cup, do you have your wallet, do you have your keys? I know none of you have that problem. But if I could lose my salvation, I would. But it is, it is irrevocable. And so it says in Romans 11:29, for the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. Praise God that it is ours and no one can take it from us. Let me tell you something else just about this incredible calling that's so incredible as Scripture reveals in John 10 and 27. In John 10, 27, the Lord says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Beloved, those who are Christ, those who have the irrevocable calling, will never be taken from him. This is eternal security. Once you are saved, you are always saved. But there is the other side of that doctrine. There is the divine sovereignty of God's calling, which is irrevocable. But there is the human responsibility of obedience, of the perseverance of the saints. You cannot have one without the other. They go hand in glove. They are the, the two railroad tracks that seem never to touch but are perfectly parallel and come together in the mind of God. We have our responsibility we have to continue to be obedient, but to understand that those who have heard the calling will persevere in Christ. The audience here is the believing Jews to whom he writes, and again, by application, all of us. And this is a powerful introduction, is it not? Six Greek words that just blast off the page and launch us into this third chapter. And at this point, we're set to consider these components of faithfulness, both those of the original audience and by application, ours, those to which we partake of. So let's go to our first point as we consider how much we love our home. And our first point is a great consideration. A great consideration. Our first point here, a great consideration, it begins in the middle of verse 1, immediately beyond that introduction. And just a quick point about structure. Both of our points in this sermon have two subpoints, and they are the same subpoints Jesus and Moses. Not too complicated, you know, me as an engineer, keep it simple. Jesus and Moses are the two points that are being spoken about. A great consideration is the consideration of Jesus and the consideration of Moses. So now we're going to skip around a bit on this first point. It's not strictly linear, so stay with me. So let's look at the first part of a great consideration, a consideration of Jesus there in the middle of verse 1, where it says, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him. The consideration of Jesus. I know you're all marveling at that subpoint, going, wow, Pastor, how did you come up with so, something so brilliant as that? You know me, I'm the engineer, it just kind of comes that way. But I'm sure you're understanding by now, as we've spent eight months together, that I'm not seeking for cleverly contrived statements to grab your attention. I'm trying to pull everything right out of the text, because that's where I want to drag you is back into the text. Always to know what God's book says. And that is what he holds me responsible to. That's what I stand before him. What he'll say is, how did you do at feeding my sheep my book? And so that's my goal. Just as we saw in Ezekiel on Wednesday night, the watchman who is responsible for those to whom he brings the word. But if he is faithful to bring the word then they are the ones who must receive and who bear that responsibility. So he says, consider Jesus. This is a command. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. The word consider means to have intense scrutiny. 
It is the exact same word as I, I mentioned the parallel with our Bible study in Glenn's class as we were looking at 2 Timothy 2 and verse 7. The identical Greek verb in the command imperative form. Consider or think. Stop. Scrutinize. Look carefully at Jesus. Full sensory perception is required here. We're, we're not just considering the pew and saying, oh yeah, the fabric's got a little pattern in it and it's got a beautiful oak and got some bookshelves underneath the front ones and in the back of the others. No, no, no. Consider Jesus. Consider God. Consider God Almighty who is the creator of heaven and earth. This will require all that you have of mental faculties. You know, my kids are entering into their upper divisions in college, and they're taking some tough courses. And I'm going, whoa, you're doing what? What kind of law course? You're scaring me to death with the title of that class. Peter's diving into calculus. I'm like, oh, I remember that. That just pains my heart. That is not even at that level the consideration that we're being called to. This is intense scrutiny because we are considering God incarnate. This is, this is not to be dabbled with or to be trifled over, as we're going to see. Because when he makes these kind of commands in Hebrews, what's coming next is the warning if you don't. And that's what we're going to be seeing in the next two weeks. This is an important element. That's just what we saw back in Hebrews 2 in verse 3 where it said, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The answer was, of course, we will not neglect, or we will not escape. So then he goes on to tell us more about the consideration of Jesus. He says he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, initially, doesn't it seem a bit odd to consider that Jesus is an apostle? I read that and I went, wait a minute. Now, I know the twelve were apostles, and I know that Paul was an apostle, and I know that there aren't apostles today, but how is Jesus an apostle? Well, exactly when we understand the meaning of that Greek word, it means one who is sent and sent by God. Directly spoken to and communicated with by God to go out into the word. Were the 12, or the 12 disciples who became the 12 apostles communicated to by God? Of course they were. They lived with Jesus for three years. Was Paul communicated to by God? Yes, he was on the Damascus road and he received the heavenly vision, which he continued to testify about before Agrippa and others. Jesus also is one who is sent, having spent time, spent all eternity with his Father God, now being sent by him. Therein he is indeed rightly called an apostle. John 17 and verse 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus was sent directly by God. Again, this is why there are no longer apostles today. God is no longer calling and speaking and sending people directly. Why? Because when God speaks, it is divine revelation, is it not? We would agree that God's word is divine revelation. He has spoken to us through the 66 books of the scripture that are divine revelation and have opened our eyes to the truth of God. And we would say that at the end of Revelation, the canon was closed. There was no more revelation from God. If God continues to speak today... That is divine inspired revelation, which we believe does not occur today in that fashion. Therein he cannot send others because he is no longer divinely speaking in an audible direct way to send people. He is placing a call upon our lives. He is calling people to salvation. But we are not hearing the voice of God. We are not seeing a blazing light in the sky and being dropped to our knees and blinded for a time, as was Paul. No, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest. Jesus as high priest was introduced to us back in verse 17 of chapter 2, as I mentioned. 
Well, this will be picked up again in, in later chapters. Apostle and high priest of our confession. This is really the crux of the verse. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Well, well what is a confession? When we think of, uh, of the great confessions of the reformers, it is their written and spoken words. A confession by us, beloved, is when we would speak the truth of which we believe in our heart. What does Romans 10.9 say? That if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord. This isn't a one-time confession. This isn't just saying, yes, I believe Jesus is Lord, and then going off and sinning the rest of your life. No, this is a continual confession. It's an ongoing confession. It is a part of us in our lives. And so also is Jesus to be the ongoing confession of our lives. And his life is that which we confess. It is the gospel. It is his life his death, his burial, and his resurrection. These are the things, beloved, which establish our faith. His perfect sinless life is the necessary foundation of the gospel. Hebrews 4.15 tells us where it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus understands all that we are going through. Is that not comforting? When we go through struggles, when we have physical trials in our lives, when we have spiritual trials in our lives, the Lord knew every one of those. He is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he lived that life. Yet it was a sinless life. He did not fall in temptation as we do. But he lived that perfect sinless life. Romans 5.8 carries this idea forward where it says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His death confirmed by his burial. Jesus' perfect sacrificial life, and then his death by which he purchases our redemption and our path of resurrection in following him is assured as well. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. What did Paul preach on in 1 Corinthians 15? The resurrection. This I make known to you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That which was witnessed. And he gives all of the list of those who saw Christ after his resurrection. And he goes on through the rest of the chapter to proclaim the resurrection of Christ. Because it is that gospel it is the life, death, burial, and resurrection which are our confession. As Jesus is the gospel, beloved, the gospel applies to us. If we are here and we are saved, we must recognize that Jesus' life must be paralleled in our lives if we are those who are truly saved by him. The gospel applies to each of us. Paul preached the gospel to himself. I think that we can expect that we better preach it to ourselves. What does Romans 3.23 say? As we consider Jesus' sinless life, tempted in all things, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus was perfect. He lived the sinless life. We live sinful lives. How are we to make that transition? Especially when Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. But, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 carries forward the gospel as we see his sinless life, our sinful life, his death for ours, our death with results from our sins. And it says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Jesus' perfect sinlessness is given to our account. We give in exchange for that our sin. How does that work? I don't know. Does that seem fair? Absolutely not. But that is the love of God. That is, that's how we understand how he has loved us to bring us to himself. But for this to happen, just as we talked about eternal security and how God will lose none that are his and also the perseverance of the saints, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 carries forth this idea of the gospel in us where it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And we ask ourselves, is this true? If I am new in Christ, are all things new? Did it happen instantaneously? Oh, wouldn't that have been great? Wouldn't it have been great to have been saved and sin? See you later. No more of that. No more of the cussing. No more of the lustful thoughts. No more of the challenges that daunt us. No more of the gossip. But it's just not that way. No, you see, but we are brought to be reminded that we must continually fight this battle. That we must continually be making all things new. Why do we come to church? Why do we fellowship? Why is the body of Christ so important? Because we love one another and we know one another and we're in one another's lives. It's vital that we recognize that we are either new and living this way or we are not and we are apart from him. And everyone, beloved, makes this decision. There are no fence riders in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You either are a believer or you are not. There is no, none of this one foot in the church and one foot in the world. That's both foot in the grave. There is only one way in Christ, and it's all in. And the results are eternal, as John 5:28 proclaims for us. Do not marvel at this, Jesus said, for an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now there is no halfway. You are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are all in as a believer or you are all out and you are on your way to eternal judgment. Beloved, this is a great consideration, don't you think? Truly the greatest consideration, a consideration of Jesus. And this consideration perfectly introduces our theme, the, the components of faithfulness that dictate your love. If you don't know and accept Jesus as Lord and Master, you hate him. John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. Where are our deeds? Are all things new in our life? Or are we still hanging on to some of those evil deeds? Are some of those old sins still got a grip on us? And I just, I can't let them go because I don't want to let them go. Only those who love him will keep his commandments. In John 14, 15, it proclaims that. 1 John 2, 4, also, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Beloved, you must know this consideration. You must know the consideration of Jesus. Junior hires and high schoolers that are with us this morning, where are you when it comes to the truth of Jesus Christ? You embark upon a new school year. It's exciting. I get some new clothes. I'm growing out of the old ones. I'm going to see my new friends. I'm not in elementary school. I'm not in junior. I'm now in high school. We're moving up in the world. Where are you in considering Christ? Have you made that commitment? And have you, are you living by that commitment? Are you living in obedience to Christ? Have you decided that yes, you are his and I must be baptized in obedience to his word. I must live in obedience to it. I must seek my parents' guidance to know where I am falling short. 
college students, as you move on to a totally new era in life, those of you that are there wondering what's next, is that special someone out there that I'm going to meet when I go to such and such university? Is that job that I'm going to love and spend the rest of my life at awaiting for me this year? Those are important considerations. I would tell you, consider Jesus. He is the one that is most important. He is the one that you must transact upon today. Because it is him that will change your life. So also, middle-aged and old-aged, are we living according to this? Are we seeking to grow? Are there areas where we can serve and have not considered that? Where we've been complacent and comfortable in our positions? Are there areas of outreach and need in our church, in our community? Beloved, they are everywhere. We had the most amazing week this week as we went out for Bible club and did the outreach. 30, 40 some kids came over. Incredible gospel presentation by our brother Yogi Taylor. All we did was go out and hang out and eat some watermelon and watch kids play games and, and, and you know, hug them and, and be a part of their lives. You think you can do that? I'll tell you, if you don't, you are missing out on one of the greatest blessings that are to be had in this life. And there's room for all. But we must consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, of my confession. Verse 2 continues this consideration. It says, he was faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus was faithful to his father who appointed him. Beloved, God is always faithful. It never changes. He never changes. 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him. Beloved, we must be faithful to God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be faithful to God? It means to understand what he's called us to and to live in obedience to it, to live in obedience to his word, to grow in it, to read it, and not just read it so I can check off my Bible study list, but to read it and say, where am I falling short it means to be obedient in prayer. Not just pray so that I can pray through a, a, a few details and pray for our missionaries, very important things to do, but so that I can really know, Lord, help me to know who in the church needs a call today. Help me to be ready today, Lord. Put upon my lips the gospel of Christ as I go forward. Beloved, this is what it means to be faithful. And Jesus was faithful in all things. God appointed him to such a role. God literally made him for this purpose so that he would come forth in faithfulness. This too is a great consideration. And so it continues in the second half of verse 2. Only now we do a little switch. We were considering Jesus. Now we're for a brief moment going to consider Moses. Look at the second half of verse 2 with me. As Moses also was... In all his house. Moses was faithful. Moses was a key figure in Jewish history. Many consider Moses to be more important and higher than the angels, according to one commentator. Think of Moses' position. He was the one who was always read. When we considered the law, there was a consideration that it was Moses. And rightly so. He was the writer, the author of the law empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was the one who was faithful in so many ways. Moses received his accolade not from men, but directly from God. Listen to Numbers 12 and verses 7 and 8. Numbers 12 and verse 7 begins as the Lord speaks, Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? Moses was faithful in his life. He was carried forward in amazing ways when God called him to do work that no one would want to do. The terror and the fear that he would be brought before. He said, I will go forward. And yet, we can sometimes 
get the, the Moses conception and perception and place it upon other men. We can exalt other men to a place where they ought not be or other women who you ladies are studying. And we can put them on a platform and say, these are the ones who are the exalted teachers and leaders of our day. And they have done some great things and there are some wonderful books and some resources. But many of them begin to go askew later in life. I remember not long ago we were given a devotional book and it was called Jesus Calling. You looked at the devotions and you read through a few of them and they looked pretty good. I mean, it looked like it was mostly scripture and, you know, kind of encouraging words and thoughts. And it was like, okay, that's a good devotional book. And then you get back and you start reading the introduction. And the author starts talking about how she was spending a lot of time in prayer. And you're going, good. We all ought to spend a lot of time in prayer. And, you know, I began to, she said, I, I began to be quiet in prayer and to listen. When you start hearing about people being quiet and listening in prayer exclusively, be careful. And then she went on to say, I started to hear God speak to me. And so this is what I've written in my devotional. What were we just talking about? When God is speaking, that is divine revelation. God speaks to us in one way, beloved, and it's through his book. It's through his word that he inspires us. We cannot place people on a pedestal. We can't get the Moses perception for anyone, no matter who they are. We are told to consider Jesus above all, no matter the key figure and the stature of Moses, because we do wrongly exalt men. Even though Moses was faithful in all his house, his house is God's house. Notice that it's capitalized there in your Bibles. That's because of the quote we read from Numbers 12, 7. And it said there, not so with my servant Moses, he is faithful in all my household. So it is all of God's household, all of the children of Israel, in which Moses was faithful. Faithful in all, it tells us. Well, the consideration of Moses is only a brief picture, and we return quickly to the consideration of Jesus in verse 3. We reminded about how that structure would flip-flop a little. Well, now we're going to bounce back to the consideration of Jesus. Look at verse 3 with me. For he had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Jesus is worthy of more glory because he was more faithful. Although Moses was considered faithful, Jesus so much more so. Moses had a few indiscretions. When he was called to be the spokesman for God, he kind of waffled on that whole thing. You know, um, can't you find somebody else? I'm kind of I'm slow of speech. I'm weak of mouth. And what did God say? Who is man? Who created man's mouth? Was it not I? But Moses was a little weak at that first call. And then there's the whole stone issue where the Lord said, speak to the stone that the water may come forth. And Moses struck it twice with a stick. And we know from 1 Corinthians 10 that that rock was Jesus Christ whom he struck that brought forth that water, that nourishment to the children. Moses had a few indiscretions, but Jesus, he had none. He was perfect at every turn. Moses received glory for his faithfulness, but like the glow on his face from being with God, it faded after a while. But the glory of Christ, it never has and it never will fade. The consideration of Jesus and his glory alongside of Moses is paralleled here to a house and its builder. Although a spiritual house was the reference in verse 2, now we come back to a physical house. How do we know that? How do we understand when the author is switching between a real house and a spiritual house? This is an important question. We have to be able to look at the context, beloved. Look at verse 2 again with me, just to understand that. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. Ignoring for a moment the capitalization, if it said Moses was in all his house and it meant a literal house, what would that mean? It would mean the walls of his home. So if I'm faithful in my home, uh, I'm faithful above Karen, Averill, and Peter. Well, that's okay. 
probably not true, but that's okay. But it's not nearly compared to all of God's house, the spiritual house, which is all Israel. But now we come back in verse 3, and he's talking about a literal house because he's referencing a builder of that house. Someone who physically puts up and constructs that house. So this is how we understand. And this important aspect of Bible interpretation of hermeneutics, we must know. So Jesus has more glory than Moses as the builder has to the house. Now, I've seen some, some fine houses. I've worked on homes that have been featured on the cover of Architectural Digest. I've built homes that have heated floors, heated towel rods for your towel, and every possible consideration of affluence. Some that had 16 bedrooms and and 35,000 square feet. And you're like, when do you even get to all those rooms? But what we're talking about here is that the builder is the one who gets the acclaim. And so it was. The house was nice, but all of the people wanted to know who built it. Because if I'm going to have a house built, that's what I want. It's the guy who builds the house that got the credit. Well, Moses was faithful in all his house, per verse 2. But notice he was in the house. Moses was a part of the house. But Jesus and the house which he built, as John 1, 3 tells us, that he is over that house. Listen to John 1 and verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus built everything. Jesus is the creator. He is the master builder. He is over all the house. Verse 4 carries forward the same sense where it says, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Just as every house has a builder, and the someone who receives the credit for the house, and yet all things are built by God. God is the one who deserves all the honor and the glory. The Father's bestowal of honor and glory upon Jesus, it is incontrovertible and it is uncontestable. No one can take it away and no one can challenge it because God is above all things. This is indeed truly a great consideration. And so also, our second point, like it, a great correlation. We've seen a great consideration in considering Jesus. Now we see a great correlation in verses 5 and 6. Look at them with me. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Verse 5 begins the correlation of Moses. One who was a faithful servant. This word, this word servant here, it's the, this is the only place it's used in the scripture. It's a very unique word. It's a very familiar word to us. The Greek word is therapon. Listen to it again. Therapon. What does it sound like? Sounds like therapy, doesn't it? And that's exactly where our word therapy comes from. It means a physician who administered care. It is one who is tender and loving. It is one who is worthy of dignity and honor. And so Moses was. He was indeed this servant. But he was more than that. He was a watchman. He was the one who stood on the wall and cried out to the children of Israel. And this is the role that he was more prominent than anyone in the nation of Israel. Dr. MacArthur notes that in Exodus 35 to 40, there are 22 references to Moses' faithfulness. And in that last chapter in Exodus 40, eight times God is exalting Moses' obedience. And verse 5 is a restatement of the end of verse 2 in the second half of our point, the consideration of Moses. But this, the correlation of Moses, is more than that, for it's further elaborated on in the second half of our verse, in verse 5. For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. What is this? 
What, what is a testimony of the things which were to be spoken later? Well, we know what a testimony it is. It, it is a witness. It is one who bears the truth. One who carries forth what someone or what God has done. But notice what he is testifying to was that which was to be spoken. This is a, an incredibly intricate statement. It's telling us that there is a future occurrence of that which will be spoken and Moses' life showed faithfulness to it. John Calvin and, and Thomas Aquinas and Dalich and others interpret this phrase as follows. They say it should be translated for a testimony of the things which should be spoken by God through the prophets and finally through Christ. Moses is testifying about that which will be spoken later. By God speaking through his servants. Moses lived in such a way that when the prophets spoke, when the Lord came forward and spoke, those who understood and had read Moses said, Ah yes, this was the life that Moses lived. This was the obedience that he brought forth. Moses lived in such a way that his life was a living testimony. Everything he did was about God. He was completely devoted in all ways, considering God first and then acting. So when more things were God, of God were spoken, they recognized this is just how Moses lived. Beloved, we have to ask, does this apply to your life? When people look at your life, do they say, ah, yes, this is the way a Christian is to live. This is what we understand. This is what we recognize from that which we know of God. And do they know God? Can they understand his word? No, because they are dead to it. But God has placed himself in their heart. They know when they recognize a Christian living amongst them. Beloved, this has to be us. This, this future passive verb is a strong allusion to what we saw back in Numbers 12.8 where it said God speaks with him mouth to mouth, not in dark sayings. The sons of Israel of Moses' day, they didn't know much about the revelation of Christ. They, they knew a lot about God. They saw the Shekinah glory. They lived under the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Oh yes, they understood God, but they, they didn't get the nuances of the Messiah. Nonetheless, their understanding was only partial. Hebrews 10 says this very thing. In Hebrews 10.1 it says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of the things, can never by the same sacrifice which they offer continually year by year, Make perfect those who draw near. The law was a shadow of the substance to come. It, it, it indicated what was coming. As Moses wrote, it was an indication that there was more, but it was incomplete. The law could never make full forgiveness. It could never make propitiation, as we talked about last week. It was only an atonement. It was a temporary covering. However, as one commentator notes, if a person truly accepted the shadow, he would also accept the substance. He would recognize it when it became known. And Jesus said in John 5:46, "For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me." That which was revealed of Moses was a testimony of Christ that would later be written. And this is our second point in a great correlation. A transition from the correlation of Moses to a correlation of Christ. Verse 6 says, But Christ was, a faithful, was faithful as a son over his house. Notice how we change from the person of Jesus to his role as Christ. No longer are we talking about the person, but now the Messiah. Now the anointed one. His office and the elevation of his dignity are expressed here. And again, we're reminded that Moses was in his house. He was part of that house. But Christ is a son over the house, the builder of the house. 
Moses was faithful in all his house, but Christ faithful above all his house. Moses was an incredible servant, but never could he be equal with the Son. A great consideration and, and a great correlation to beautiful components of faithfulness. And, and our application is written right into our text at the end of verse 6. Look again at the end of verse 6 with me. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. We are the ones who are Christ's house. Just as it was written to those believers, those Jewish believers, it is written to you and to I, beloved. We are the ones who are Christ's house. This is Christ's body. Empowered and put together to do his work. The ones whom he is over. But then there is the big if clause in verse 6. If we hold our confidence if we boast of our hope firm until the end. This is going to lead us to that warning passage next week, which is going to be a big one. But for now, we're called to do two things in our text. And note them carefully, beloved. Two things that he calls us to in this application and conclusion. The first is hold fast your confidence. What does this mean? Hold fast here means to, to chart a course and to be unswerving as you follow it. It's a nautical term. It means to set a straight course and to never veer from it. Confidence is an easy thing to lose, isn't it? Particularly for men. As I studied this and considered this week, uh, and, and I've often said many of us who appear as men to be these solid rock figures are really eggshells that with the right flip of a finger will crack and will have great trouble and fall apart before your eyes as Humpty Dumpty off the wall. Think of it. How many homeless women do you see? Yes, there are some, but by far they are homeless men. How many of our prisons are full of women? Yes, there are women in prison, but as a whole it is men. I believe it is men who lose their confidence and who fall and go to depraved and demoral efforts. Confidence is, is a very, very gentle thing. And we must recognize how quickly it is for us to lose. And if our confidence, beloved, is in ourselves, it is just like our salvation. How will we hold it? Am I supposed to hold together? Am I the one who always has to have the answer? Is everyone to be looking to me? Boy, I sure hope not. But if our confidence is in Jesus Christ, if he is the rock that we're looking to, we have no problem. Because he is the same yesterday and today and forever. And we can continue to focus on that. And it is then that we are called to this idea of boasting. And you read that and you go, wait a minute, boasting? Isn't that pride? Isn't that arrogance? Isn't that being pompous and a bad thing? Interesting, it's the exact same word, but the distinction is who is your boasting in? Is your boasting in yourself or is your boasting in God? Christ boasted all the time of his Father who did all things through him. And therein, he was the perfect picture of humility. There's a vocal component to this idea of boasting, beloved. It is not just the way that we live our lives. Because if we live our lives in a boastful way, we will look pompous. But if we speak in such a way that our boasting is of Christ, people will know of our humility. I am nothing. He is everything. Beloved, Moses was faithful in all his house. Jesus was faithful as a son over his house. But the question becomes, are you faithful? And these two points of obedience are our points of application. Are you holding fast your confidence? Are you boasting in your hope? These will dictate the depth of your love. And they must be done, as our text tells us, until the end, until God returns or until he takes us home. Isn't it wonderful to consider the testimony of dear saints in the faith? 
This past week, one of our dearest friends went home to be with the Lord. At 99 years old, the gentleman who, in, in his honor, our hymnals and our Bibles were purchased. 99 years and nine months of faithfulness to God. Is that not a picture for what we all must be and what we must strive for? This is where we have to go. This is who we must be, those who hold fast and those continue to boast. Well, as we must do that to the end, this so for today is an end. But let me exhort you, beloved, consider Jesus. Because if you are focusing and rightly bringing him before you in all things, all of the rest of the matters of obedience to your life, they will fall into place. Your Bible reading, to learn and to know and to love Him, it will become a desire and a delight. Your need for prayer and to come before Him in all things, it will saturate your day. Your desire to know more the people in this blessed body of Christ, to interact with them, to be part of their lives, not in a superficial manner, but in the realities of the depth of your faith, it will happen. And your desire to carry forth the gospel to this desperately needy world, It'll always be on the tip of your tongue. Uh, my prayer for you is that as we go from here, we will more faithfully consider Jesus.